If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me now to 1 Kings chapter number 18. 1 Kings chapter number 18. I want to preach to you for just a few minutes on this thought. Man enough to stand even if you stand alone. I don't have to explain or go into any great detail this morning about the state of fatherhood in America. As a matter of fact, something approaching 50% of all babies born in America today are born in a state where there's not a father who has committed himself to that mother in the holy state of matrimony. And when that happens, it's too easy for the father of that child to get up and leave because there's no commitment been made. Amongst certain demographics, that number's approaching 85% in America today. And I'm here to tell you that there's a need this morning for fathers. And it's a decision time for all of us, and each one of us here today will make a decision before we leave. Now, I done got you scared to death, so I'm going to have to tell you a story. Back when I went in the Marine Corps, uh, I took up skiing. And while I was gone, I skied a lot. Well, I'd been telling my dad about that and uh, been asking him to go with me. Well, he was probably about my age now. That's been a long time ago, ain't it, Shane? Uh, and never been skiing before. So we take him skiing one night up here at Appalachian, you know, the one that's close. And my dad, uh, he's scared to death anyway, and he gets on that ski lift and we're going up. And I'm telling him now, when you get to the top and that thing reaches that point, uh, right at the peak, you've got to kind of push yourself and jump off and get off that ski lift because it ain't stopping for nothing or nobody. Well, Daddy, get, I get him on that thing, and we're going up there, and he's you know all nervous about what's going to take place when we get to the top of that thing. And, and if, if you've ever rode a ski lift, you know how that when they get to the top, they reach that peak, and there's a ramp that goes down. That's you just push yourself off and go down. But immediately that thing starts raising up because the ramp's going down, the ski lift is staying at the same level. Well, then it turns a corner to go back down. And pick up, well, when it turns that corner, just like when you're whipping behind a boat, you know, that thing speeds up going around that corner. Well, we get up to the top, and uh, I'm telling now, Daddy, I'm going to tell you when. Now, you just got to push off and get off that thing. All right, all right. We get up there to the top, and I said, all right, Daddy, when? I push off, and he don't push off. He hangs on to that thing. But by this time, he's about half on, half off. Well, you've met my daddy. He ain't going to hold on for too long. Well, that thing speeds up and it starts around that corner and the ski lift goes and daddy stays, but it's a long way down by then. <laughs> well, he falls down, lands on the ground, and next thing you know, my dad's going to down the side of the mountain. Glad I got you smiling. Indecision can be a rough thing that causes rough consequences. I think about the story of D.L. Moody when he was preaching uh, he preached a message titled, uh, What Shall I Do With This Jesus, which is called the Christ. I've preached a message similar to that my, myself in Chicago to the largest crowd of people that he had ever preached to that night. And, and when he got finished, D.L. Moody said something like this to the congregation. He said, I'm going to give you a week to think about what you should do with this Jesus, which is called the Christ. Well, 
Uh, at that time, his choir director, Sankey, that had followed him all over the world, came up and started leading uh, the people in a song to be dismissed. And before he even got finished, they even got finished singing the song. They heard the sounds of the fire engines and all of those sirens coming. And you know the story, the next morning, the whole city of Chicago lay in ashes. Uh, I want to read you what D.L. Moody said. I've never since dared, he said, to give an audience a week to think of their salvation. If they were lost, they might rise up in judgment against me. I've never seen that congregation since, and I will never meet those people until I meet them in another world. But I want to tell you of one lesson that I learned that night which I have never forgotten, and that is when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there, and try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I would rather have that right hand cut off than to give an audience a week now to decide what to do with Jesus. This message this morning on Father's Day 2018 will be for men. I want to talk to you about being willing to make a decision to take a stand and take that stand alone if necessary. There's three examples that I want to focus on this morning. One is Adam, the one we're going to read about in 1 Kings, Elijah, and the other is Jesus. No one was more of a man, more willing to stand alone than our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to summarize the story of Elijah and his uh, confrontation with Baal this morning that we're going to read about. We first see him in 1 Kings chapter number 17. Elijah's told to go uh, by God to go to King Ahab and tell him that until he says so, it's not going to rain in Israel again. Now, at first glance, you say, well, you know, he's going to tell him there's going to be a drought. But you've got to understand that Baal was considered uh, by those who were worshiping him as a false god, as the god of rain, the one that sent rain upon the land. So when Elijah goes to Ahab and says, hey, the God of Israel has sent me to tell you it's not going to rain in Israel until I tell it to rain, he was making a bold statement. He was saying that God you're serving is really no God at all, and my God is the real uh, God. And he was making that statement to the king who had power uh, to do him hurt. So he told him that it wasn't going to rain. Well, Elijah makes this announcement to him, and then he leaves, and after a couple of years, the wicked king Ahab, he, he sends another prophet, a prophet by the name of Obadiah, uh, to look for him. Well, Obadiah is a good prophet. We know from the story there in First uh, Kings that when Jezebel sent out people to kill all the prophets of God, that Obadiah had hid about a hundred of them uh, in a cave to protect them and keep them from harm. And he had actually fed them and brought them supplies and stuff so he could preserve them. So Obadiah is a, a, a good uh, prophet. Well, Obadiah runs into Elijah. He catches up to him and Elijah tells him, hey, I want you to go and tell King Ahab uh, that I'm here. And listen to this passage in 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, verses 9 through 12, and it'll just show you how hard and how desperately Ahab was looking for him. 1 Kings chapter number 18, verse 9, and he said, What have I sinned that thou wouldst deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? This is Obadiah speaking. Uh, he knows that Ahab's mean and he's wicked. 
As the Lord thy God liveth, there's no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. Ahab's been looking for him real hard. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. But now thou sayest, go, tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from thee, that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Obadiah didn't want to take the chance on giving Ahab this news. Uh, he thought, well, I go tell him God calls Elijah away and he can't find him again and Ahab's going to kill me. So uh, Elijah convinces him then that he's going to be there when he comes back. So he goes and tells Ahab and this is what Ahab says in verse number 17. And it came to pass in verse 17 when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Uh, well, Elijah debates that point briefly with him. Um, uh, but then he uh, sets up a challenge to prove who is the true God. And that's what happens in verses 18 through 21. Look what the Bible says. He answered and said, I've not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house. Uh, boy, I'm going to tell you what, that wouldn't go over well in most Baptist churches today. People don't like when their sin gets pointed out. In that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal four hundred and fifty, and the prophets of the groves four hundred, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people, and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. You see, Elijah was looking for someone, a man enough to stand up with him, but no one would, uh, no one would stand up. Uh, this story is one of my favorite ones in a hero story. In the Bible, uh, we see what made, uh, we can see in this what made Elijah man enough to stand up and uh, to stand alone. You see, personal dangers didn't, matter to Elijah. Now you stop and think about this. Ahab was the king. Not only did he have all these prophets, but he had an army to back him up. And Elijah was one man willing to stand up and stand against uh, this wicked king because he was God's man in God's place at God's time doing God's work in God's will. And I believe what God is wanting today is for somebody to stand up and be God's man in God's place in God's time doing God's work in God's will. Regardless of who we stand against, regardless of the dangers that may come against us. And we ask us, do we have that same attitude as Elijah? Do we want to be God's man in God's place in God's time? Now the fact of the matter is we live in a society that wants to neuter manhood. People want us to believe that there's really no difference between male and female. That it's all learned. And because of that, we're raising a generation of men that don't know what it means to be a real man. And none of us should be ashamed today or hold our head low because God has made us men. We ought to stand up and be the men that God has made us to be. Don't let society define for us. 
If a boy goes to school and he fidgets and he can't pay attention or he's a little bit aggressive, society wants to say something wrong, something's wrong, let's dope him up so he'll sit at the desk and be still and be quiet and act like a girl. Amen. But at the same time, if a boy stands up and said, I feel like a girl, I want to go use the girl's restroom. Hey, mom and daddy, there's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly normal. And we don't have enough men to stand up and say what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. I'm going to tell you this morning what I believe to be the traits of manhood by looking in the life of Elijah, in the life of Adam, and especially in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men and boys, I want us to know and understand that if we've got want to be real men, we've got to have these traits. Where's Tommy Rose at? Raise your hand, Tommy. Tommy turned me on to a book back several years ago called Raising a Modern Day Knight. And these traits are not original to me. They're straight out of that book. Uh, four of them that the book talks about. Uh, I want to talk to you this morning briefly about those four traits. The first one is a real man rejects passivity. A real man rejects passivity. You see, I want to read you verses 20 and uh, 21 again. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. A real man rejects passivity. Elijah was told to go and present himself to Ahab. Uh, he knew it wasn't a safe thing to do. He knew that uh, it could be very dangerous, but he also understood that he could not be passive in the matter. So what he goes, he sets up the challenge with the prophets of Baal. There are others that day who were passive. They were sitting on the sideline. They were just waiting to see what would happen. Uh, Elijah said, how long are you going to halt between this opinion or that opinion? And the Bible says, and the people, no doubt fathers in there and men in there, answered him not a word. They was going to see how that thing turned out for They took sides. But God said, hey, I'm in charge. I'm calling you to be on my side. And there's too many men today that are standing back and saying, hey, before I choose sides, I'm going to see how this thing works out. But God said, I'm the winner. I've got this thing under control. Choose you this day whom you'll serve. And he's calling men to reject passivity and take sides. But the people said nothing. Anyone who's been around boys knows that they've got a natural aggressiveness They've got a natural instinct to initiate, to explore, to achieve, to be curious. And they're much more apt to trip their younger brothers and knock their sister down or pull their little uh, curls in their hair or tackle some other little child and punch each other in the face or the arm uh, than they are to sit still and be quiet. It's a natural, inborn, inbred aggressiveness. It's not a learned behavior. It's innate. It's part of being a man. And God put it there so that we would not be passive in the face of danger but we would reject that passivity and take a stand I love that old Marine Corps saying I say it I've said it here many times when in uh, when in doubt do something and God's calling us today as men to reject that passivity we see that from the prophet Elijah in Genesis 3 think about this the servant we studied this as we've looked through Genesis and Genesis Three, he approaches Eve and uh, he says, Eve, I want you to eat this fruit that 
uh, it's here in the garden, and if you do, you'll be like God. And of course, he tempts Eve, and Eve eats, eats of the fruit, and uh, then she gives it of her husband to the uh, fruit uh, eat. And but when God, uh, Satan is talking. Uh, to Eve, the stage is set for Adam to intervene. I mean, Adam has been given the responsibility in the garden. Adam has uh, been given the prohibition against eating the fruit to him. God has given him a will to obey. Listen to me, obey God. He's given uh, him a work to do, take care of the garden, cultivate that thing. He's given him a woman to love, Eve. And these are his responsibilities. And Satan approaches Eve and says, hey, I want to give you this fruit and you're just waiting and looking for Adam to step in with the garden hoe and say, no, this ain't happening, big boy, and chop his head off and grab his wife and get out of there. But that's not what he does. He sits idly by as he watches his wife fall. Now, you read in Genesis chapter three, verse six. Go ahead and turn your Bible there. I don't want to tell you something and not show you what it says because a lot of people think that when this took place, Adam must have been somewhere out in the field working or Adam was far off, maybe on vacation or something. But the Bible says there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also under her husband with her and he did eat. Where was Adam's? At when all of this was taking place, he's standing right beside his wife. And in the face of danger, when he could have intervened, could have done something about it, he was passive and let that thing happen. And you and I and every generation since then has paid the price because a man that was given the responsibility sat idly by and did nothing in the face of danger. Now let's character, let's, let's contrast that with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he... Uh, He looked down upon men and he saw our sinful state and he saw the wickedness of man and our depravity and our total rebellion against God and he could have stayed up there in heaven and did absolutely nothing and you and I would have no hope and no help and there was nothing that could have required him to do that but Jesus did not sit by passively in the face of danger but he got up And the Bible says that he demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And men, God is calling us today on this Father's Day 2018 to quit sitting idly by as our children make bad decisions. To quit sitting idly by as society tells our family what's wrong and what's right. But to stand up in the face of danger and say, this is what thus saith the Lord. And I don't care who's against me, what's against me, whether I stand with many or I stand alone, I'm going to do what's right. And God's calling men to do that today for His name and for His glory, for the sake of our children and for generations yet unborn. A real man rejects passivity. To stand up for moral absolutes and say this is right and this is wrong. I don't care who it makes mad. I don't care whether people like me or don't. God says it's right, it's right. God says it's wrong, then it's wrong. And it's going to be wrong for all eternity. A real man rejects passivity. But not only that, a real man accepts responsibility. Look what the Bible says here in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to start with Adam. He failed so miserably at this. God comes and he finds that they've eaten the fruit and 
He asked them why they're hiding themselves, and they said, because we're naked. And he said, who told you you were naked? Verse number 12, listen what the man said. And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. I wonder if she held a Glock 45 to his head. <laughs> he said, God, it's your fault. You gave her to me, and if that don't work, it's her fault because I took it from her. And God's the one that said it to him. But you see, a real man accepts responsibility for his actions and the actions of his family. The most common excuse in our world today, it ain't my fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my job's fault. It's my school's fault. We want to blame everybody instead of accepting responsibility. Like Adam. Jesus was also given three responsibilities from his father. He gave him a will to obey, go and die. He gave him a work to do, redeem the lost. He gave him a woman to love, the bride, the, uh, the church. And instead of rejecting those responsibilities and saying, hey, it ain't on me, Jesus accepted that responsibility and took my sin and your sin and stood there before heaven and earth hanging on a cross and literally bore the sins of the world and said, hey, even though I've not com uh, committed one single sin, I will take responsibility. It'll be on myself. Elijah does that. They were worshiping Baal. They were living ungodly. God gave him a work to do. And Elijah stood up and said, I'll be responsible for the nation of Israel and I'll take a stand when no one else will. Man, I challenge you today to accept the responsibility of making your marriage work. Man, I challenge you today to accept the responsibility of being a parent to those children that God has entrusted you with. Me and I challenge you today to accept and take that responsibility to be the priest of your home, the provider of your home, and the protector of your home. Those three great things that God has tasked us to do. I know what people say. You don't know my wife. That's right. You don't know mine, and you really don't know me. But God said we're to be men. And we're to take responsibility in our homes to make that thing work in the good times and the bad times and the hard times and the times of plenty and in the times of want. God's given us a will to obey. <laughs> He's given us a work to do. Men, what is your number one? I'm not talking about your purpose. Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I understand that. But God, each of us here today who are fathers, has given us a mission field. And He's called all of us to be missionaries. And your number one priority in life ought to be to lead your family uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ and then disciple them and lead them into a greater walk with Him each and every day of our life. He's given us a woman to love. Man, I challenge you to accept that responsibility. The question is, are we man enough to do it? Accept the responsibility of our children. Statistics show that children are far less apt to remain faithful to God if their father is uninvolved in the things of God. 
It's not our wife's responsibility to raise our kids. It's ours. Now, it doesn't mean the wife's not important. You've heard me preach on Mother's Day. I understand the importance of mothers and wives, and I'm not taking away from that at all, but I'm also not going to cave to the culture. God has given the men the responsibility to lead in the home. This is a message of men, to men, so I challenge you to accept that responsibility. Reject passivity, accept responsibility, and then lead courageously. Verses 20 and 21 again. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Here's Elijah. He's standing. There's 850 total standing against him. These people over here, they're standing there. They're not going to answer. They're waiting to see who wins. You got King Ahab over on this side. He's got a whole army uh, uh, behind him with weapons and chariots. But Elijah said, I don't care about any of that. I'm going to take the lead and I'm going to show you which way to go. Men, don't send your children to Bible study. Bring them. Lead them. Don't send your children to church. Bring them. Lead them. Men, don't tell our families what to do. Show them what to do because a real man leads courageously. Elijah didn't just say, I'm going to reject passivity. I'm going to accept responsibility. But then he stepped out there in the forefront and did something about it. And he led courageously against all odds, against the king even. In the last days, the Bible tells us that there's going to be a brand of Christianity that looks and sounds good, but it's going to be powerless. A lot of that has to do because what's coming out of our mouth and what's living in our lives don't exactly line up. Listen, I can tell my children all day long that I love God, but if I find an excuse to be out of the house of God on the Lord's day as we celebrate the resurrection week after week after week, listen, I can tell them Santa Claus is real, but sooner or later they're going to figure out the truth. And your children are going to figure out the truth one of these days soon that that's a hypocritical statement because if you really love the Lord, you'd be obedient to the Lord and you'd lead your family and your children to do what the Lord says. A real man leads courageously. The Bible says that the head of every man is Christ, but the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Men, uh, God created men to lead. Adam relinquished that leadership in the garden when he refused to step forward and lead his wife. But Jesus, you stop and think about this. Man's greatest enemy, man's greatest fear had been death. And Jesus, as he rejected passivity and he accepted responsibility, he led courageously through the valley of the shadow of death and he came out alive on the other side. And listen, he wasn't scared. He didn't stop, though it was dangerous, though he faced all the, literally every single person, uh, no one stood up and spoke for him. Jesus bore our sins on the tree, let them nail him to a cross. He died on that tree and he came out alive on the other side and he said, hey, if you want to get to this place called eternal life, follow me. (laughs) I've been there, I've done that. He led courageously. Joshua led courageously. Elijah led courageously. I'm going to close with this. I know time's running out. A real man works and waits expectantly. I want to read you just sum this up, verses 30 through 37. Elijah's called him out and he says, all right, we're going to have us a contest. 
you take two bulls and uh, you put them on the altar and cut them in pieces and we're going to pray and if God sends fire down, then we'll know that Baal is God. And then when you get finished with all that, uh, I'm going to cut up two bulls and we're going to put them on that altar and I'm going to call on my God and if he sends fires down to consume them, we'll know that my God is the real God. Um, well, they do exactly that and Elijah said, hey, you can go first and he lets them do it and they do all that and they work and they pray and all the way throughout the day, I mean, they're calling on God and about noontime, Elijah starts mocking them and joking with them, saying, hey, your God sleeping? Your God on vacation? Where is he? And they start cutting themselves and calling out all the more, crying aloud and, uh, till the blood gushed out upon them. Uh, but here's, listen at verse 30. And Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And he built an altar there with those stones in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. He put the wood in order, cut the bull up in pieces, laid uh, on the wood. He filled four barrels with water. He poured it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, hey, that ain't good enough. Do it again. No, don't do it just two times. Do it three times. And the water ran about the altar and he filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. You see, Elijah was willing to do the work and he waited expectantly. And then he saw the results. The Baal prophets prayed. Nothing happened. Elijah prayed just a short little 60-some word prayer. And the fire of God came and consumed the sacrifice. Elijah did the work, but not only did he do the work, he expected to do God, some, God to do something great in the midst of that work. He knew that as badly as rain was needed in the land, the people needed to understand God even more. And oftentimes we think we know what we need in our life, but the truth, the greatest need we have is to get exactly where God wants us to be and serve Him. That was the heart of Elijah. Dr. Vance Havner once said if they'd had a social gospel in the days of the prodigal son, somebody would have given him a bed, a sandwich, a welfare check, and he would have never gone back home. Hey, it's not always easy to give folks what they need. But what God wants them to have is what's always best. I've dealt with people that don't want to hear the truth. And it's tough. But the truth of God never changes. It's the only thing that can lead us to death unto life. Jesus did the same. Hebrews chapter number 12, Wherefore seeing also we're uh, compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He, he worked, he came to this earth, he lived a perfect life, he went to the cross, he went through death, out the other side at the resurrection. But what was that joy that was set before him? You and I, as we gather here this morning, his bride, the church, Jesus did the work and trusted God uh, that he uh, uh, would bring about the, the best possible outcome and the outcome that would glorify God. Galatians chapter 6, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Elijah stood up against all odds, did the work, and then understood that if he was obedient and trusted God, if he'd just simply wait, he'd see great things take place. If you think the call of manhood is a call to heavy responsibility, dutiful sacrifice, then we've completely missed the example of the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it says for the joy that was set before him. Serving God ought to be the greatest joy of our life. And being a man that leads our home ought to bring us joy. And then as we do that work, uh, uh, we stand back and wait on God for the outcome. And if the only reward is men that we strive for is a paycheck or a bank account, then we're pitiful indeed. There's so much more to life than that. Oftentimes men, day after day after day, go through that thing, that drudgery of life, and never once stop and look for, towards that joy that's set before them. That's what would cause us to be able to stand up and stand out and do all of those things. And God wants us as men today to give ourselves as living sacrifices. Not a sacrifice for nothing, but a trade where we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice for unimagined reward. How many living sacrifices do you think were offered in the Old Testament? Zero. They were all dead sacrifices. But Romans chapter number 12, uh, God calls us uh, in view of God's mercy to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And this is our spiritual act of worship. Uh, I've often thought over the last several years what would cause a person to take a plane and fly that plane into buildings. Uh, knowing that they were going to die, are they crazy? I know they're wrong, but it's because they really believe in something. They're willing to die for it. And listen, men, God's not calling us today to die for our faith, though that might take place, and I hope if it does, I'm willing to do that. He's calling us to do something far greater and something far more difficult. What is that? Live for me. He's not calling you to die for your wife today. Live for her. He's not calling us to die for our children today. Live for them. He's not calling us to die for the church today. Live for the church that you offer your body as a living sacrifice. I think about, I'm going to close. I know I've got to hurry. Good gracious. I think about uh, Colonel Travis there in the Alamo. You remember the story of the Alamo, right? Old Colonel Travis was down there and there's about 160 some of those men facing six to 7,000 in Santa Ana's army. 
And I mean, they had them surrounded. They'd sent out calls for help and nobody came. And here they are. They're behind these walls. They ain't going nowhere. And this army's out there in front of them. And Santa Ana's saying, all you got to do is surrender and we'll lay down your arms and we'll let you go. And I think about old Colonel Travis. He stood up in front of those 167 men there. And you know the story. He drew a line in the sand. He started on one side and he said, I'm going to draw this line in the sand and I'm not going to surrender to Santa Ana, but I'm going to fight even to the death and anybody that's with me cross this line. And out of those 167 men, all but one crossed the line and the one that didn't uh, was Davy Crockett and he was laying on his bed so sick he couldn't move and he asked the others to pick up his bed and carry it across the line. <laughs> and every one of them stood up against Santa Ana's army and they fought and they fought and you know what happened? They all died. But just a few months later, General Sam Houston led an army of those Texans against the army of Santa Ana to the cries of remember the Alamo. And he won that great battle and Texas became a free nation and later joined the United States of America. Listen, men, do you want to live for something? Are you willing to die for something greater than yourselves and our little life and that little world that we live in? Would you like for somebody to stand up and say, remember Keith Rose and how he lived for the Lord and it's mattering in the world that I live in today. I think about old General Coda. You've heard me tell this story during World War II on those beaches of Normandy. And I mean, on Omaha Beach, things were so rough and they didn't think they was going to win that battle. And things were looking terrible and those soldiers were pinned down on that beach and there's German machine guns out in front of them, German mortars and German artillery and there's water behind them. They had nowhere to go. General Coda was out there on that boat and he was watching through those field glasses what was going on and he said, oh no, it's looking bad. Well, generals don't go into battle. But old General Coda, he climbed down off that boat into one of those landing craft and he got there and he got on that beach and he had that big old cigar sticking out of his mouth. I'm not advocating smoking. I'm just telling you what he did. He had one of them big old fat cigars. He took off his helmet and right there in the face of that machine gun fire, he wasn't crawling on that beach. No, sir, he wasn't. He stood up proud and he was walking back and forth in the face of that machine gun fire. And here's what he told those soldiers. He said, soldiers, we're dying on the beach. Why don't we get up and go and die inland? Follow me. And he led those soldiers up over those dudes in just a few short hours. Those German machine gun nests were defeated. Why? Because he rejected passivity. He accepted responsibility. He was willing to do something about it. He led courageously. And then he worked and he waited and we won that battle. And the Germans were ultimately defeated. Men, I don't know what... I'm going to draw a line. I'm going to draw a line. Just you let this right here be a line in the sand. That's a line in the sand. I'm not going to ask you to make some, I'm going to not reject passivity. I'm going to ask you to do all four this morning. Are you going to reject passivity? Are you going to accept responsibility? Are you going to lead courageously? And are you going to work and wait expectantly on what God's got in store for us? If you're willing to do that, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to come down front. And I'm going to ask you to make a bold and public proclamation that I, I, I am going to follow the Lord today and be the man that God wants me to be. Lord, you come on.
And I had a husband up on this altar, I'd have my head bowed right, right now praying that God would do a great, great work in his heart so that he could lead and love his wife and family like God has called us to do. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can never, ever be the man God wants you to be until you accept him as Savior. Don't leave this place without knowing Jesus. I believe he'd want you to pray something like this. God, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose from the grave. God, I can't do it, so I'm asking him to save me, forgive me, and grant me eternal life. I repent of my sin. I know I'm not going to be perfect, but God, I turn from it and to you. And I ask you, to help me from this day forward to live for you. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. Father, in Jesus' name, as these men are upon this altar this morning, God, you know the state of our nation, you know the state of fatherhood, you know the state of manhood in America. God, I ask today, that you would empower each of us to love our wives like Christ loved the church, to be willing to sacrifice everything, if necessary, for our families. God, help us as men to stand up for the truth of the Word of God and not cave in or give in to the culture around us. God, help us that we'll do that even if we stand alone. Lord, we can only do it through your power, so we need that today. Father, I thank you for each one that's on this altar. God, I pray that the decisions that are being made will not just stay here, but they'll leave this place, and Father, they'll affect and touch families, children, wives, communities. And through that, ultimately, you will receive glory. Help us, O God to not be passive. Help us, God, to accept that responsibility. Help us, God, to work and to wait expectantly and to lead our families courageously. God, we're going to praise you and thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, for his sake, we pray. As you go back to your seats, uh, Nicholas, you want to come on? My prayer is that there's been decisions made here that will literally carry over to eternity. Nicholas, come on. I don't usually do that, but I'm going to tell you what, I'm so hot. It's the hottest place in this church right up here. I'm, <laughs> I'm soaking wet. Gary, you're talking about changing clothes for that baptism. I'm as wet as if I was in that river right now, I believe. Nicholas Wisnett, uh, Bible school. I've already talked to his mother. 
I've talked to him. Uh, he came forward and made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I talked to him about baptism. I told him that that was our next act of obedience after following the Lord uh, Christ. And uh, uh, talked to him about what that meant. Symbolizes our death, our burial, and our resurrection to walk in newness of life with the Lord. I explained to him that it was our first public profession of faith and Jesus told us that we were to go and, and to tell. And uh, He said that if we're silent before men, he'll be silent on our behalf before the Father. And, but if we proclaim him before men, he'll proclaim us to the Father. And he said he understood all of that. We talked a little bit. He was asking me some questions and I said, now Nicholas, hold on, I don't understand all of it myself. <laughs> Smart young man. He's come before you today wanting to be baptized into this family here at Zion Baptist Church and he wants to go up there on the river and do it, praise God. I'd want to be baptized on the river too. So, though I hear a movement of the church. Second, all those in favor, let it be known by saying amen. And I know there's none opposed in Nicholas. I want you to, he showed me his Bible this week. He ain't got it with him. He brought it with him this morning. He was proud of that thing. You keep reading that word of God. Remember what I told you. It'll keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from it. Let it keep you from sin. And read that thing every day. I'm proud of you, Nicholas. Nicholas, Mom, if you will, come on down. Uh, I want y'all to stand up here. The church is going to come. and uh, You can bring all the young ones. They ain't going to bother nobody. We love them babies around here. Oh, they're in, they're in the back. Oh, well, yeah. You come on down. Church, I'm going to ask you, if you will, just come and speak to Nicholas. Let him know how proud of him you are. And I'm going to ask Ed Collins, Collins if he will. Enjoy your evening, daddies. No services tonight. Have fun. Uh, enjoy this day that the Lord has made. Ed, if you'll close us in prayer.